Tonight, the most interesting man alive joins us with a really incredible story. I'm Richard. And I'm Gary, and these are our incredible stories. Hello and welcome back to all of our listeners from around the world and across the United States. We are so happy to have you back with us again for some more incredible stories. If you are uh, joining us for the very first time and uh, you thought, hey, I'm going to go ahead and give this a look-see, well, welcome. Go ahead, take a seat, uh, pull up a chair, uh, get some refrigerator, uh, you know, some refreshments out of the refrigerator and uh, make yourself cozy. We're going to be uh, sharing with you some incredible stories. And you know what? If you like what you hear, well, guess what? You can come back every single Friday. We'll be here waiting for you, and we're going to have some more incredible stories to share with you. That being said, we do have an incredible person here today, don't we? Oh, you've got that right, <laughs> Gary. Uh, Edward Meyer, who is known as the master of oddities, is an author of a great book, uh, 500 pages, and uh, I had the privilege of reading that uh, over the last couple of weeks. It's called Buying the Bazaar. And that book is a true uh, account of his 40 years of uh, his adventures with uh, Ripley's Entertainment. And these are the folks who uh, bring you Ripley's Believe It or Not. So without further ado, let's uh, go ahead and welcome Edward to the podcast. Hello, Edward. Hey, good afternoon, Richard. Good afternoon, Gary. Thanks for having me on. Oh, oh absolutely. It's a pleasure. Now, I, I felt a little like Edward R. Murrow with that introduction, Gary. Yeah. <laughs> before my time, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> way, way before my time, too. Well, um, Edward, uh, I know you have some incredible stories with Ripley's, but, you know, I found other parts of the book uh, equally as fascinating, too. So uh, I thought maybe this evening we could uh, spend a few minutes talking about um, your childhood. And you mentioned in the book that your mom uh, taught you how to respect and appreciate a lot of things, uh, not the least of which were the birds and the trees and the flowers and mummies. Well, neither of my parents were, uh, you know, well-educated. My father, uh, truthfully, was almost illiterate, but my mother had a high school uh, uh, business degree. So that was three years worth of high school, nine, 10, and 11 in Canada. But she was an avid reader. Uh, I remember her reading constantly uh, about everything, always watched Jeopardy on TV, played a lot of Scrabble. And, you know, from a very, very early age, our family was road trippers. And my mother would plan out where we were going and what we were going to see, you know, it wasn't just putting up a tent and having a campfire. There had to be a reason to go there. And, you know, the whole trip was planned around specific places or people of interest. Um, as I said, she's an avid reader, forced us, you know, twisted our arms to make us go to the library regularly. And, you know, we grew up in a family that was curious. And, uh, you know, from there, uh, you know, we specifically asked about mummies. Uh, I, I remember an eighth grade birthday party. Uh, you know, myself and three or four of my friends were taken to the Royal Ontario Museum. And, you know, from that day forward, I was absolutely fascinated by all things Egypt. And, you know, at that point, I certainly never dreamt that I'd be in a position later in my life where I was actually buying mummies. 
<laughs> you know, it's uh, amazing how some of the things that we do uh, as adults uh, actually uh, stem from from some uh, early childhood uh, adventures. And and I have to I have to uh, really admire your mother too because. Uh, you mentioned going to the library, but you pretty much had a, a, a strict regimen there. Uh, she required that you check out three books every Monday night. Well, that's what the library allowed us, you know, three, three books <clears throat> until you returned the three books. But we would go on a Monday night as a family. Uh, I had two sisters. My younger sister may not remember it so much because she was pretty young. But my elder sister and I, uh, you know, would go and we'd have our own library card and three books is what we were allowed. And you know, I, I don't know if we always took our three, but we always took something home and, um, you know, we're expected to read it within the week. Well, you know, wow. uh, in addition to having a, a, a formal education there in the public school, Edward, you also sound like you had an incredible homeschooling experience as well on top of it. Well, I think so. And, and, you know, not that my father wasn't present, but that's all my mom. Mm -hmm. My mother was very much a reader, very much a curious person interested in the world and, and, you know, passed that on, wanted us to know it and wanted us to appreciate the things around us. Now, in your book, you describe yourself as a pack rat, uh, Edward, uh, and, and actually the master of clutter. Did that start in childhood or did that come later? Well, I think it probably developed pretty early and got worse, you know, <laughs> but um, uh, from a very early age, I was a collector. Uh, you know, one of the first things I, I recall is, you know, Beatles cards that came in bubblegum packages yeah. and there were coins, plastic coins that came in uh, jello packages. You know, I'm talking at age five or six that, you know, I'm eating a lot of Jello just to get the coins. <laughs> and, you know, hockey players, and there was cars, and there was birds, and a few other subjects that, you know, I can't say that I was really hyper into any of it, but it was the act of collecting that excited me. Yeah. And, you know, and going back directly to your question is I never threw anything out. So over, over time, the clutter has grown. You know, uh, I like I like the title "Master of Clutter." Maybe I'll use that, but uh, I'm, I'm not sure I've mastered it. I've just tackled it. You know? <laughs> well, you know what? I'm kind of familiar with that because I'm looking, uh, you know, across the desk here at somebody who I also consider a master of clutter, and that's you, Gary. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I enjoyed my childhood very much, and so I kept a lot of things from my childhood. It's just that he it spread everything. out over three houses. He kept everything, Edward. Yeah, and it spread over three houses. And, uh, well, I've got a piece of paper that I kept on my desk, probably pretty close to the 40 years I worked at Ripley's, uh, <laughs> that said, you know, don't yell about my clutter. I know exactly where everything is. I, you know and what? That's exactly me, too. For the most part, I did. You know? mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, Gary, you were going to say... Uh, that's exactly me, too. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I, it may look like a mess, but it's my organized mess. Yeah, I could yeah. never find anything in it, but he can go right to whatever he's looking for. Yeah, you, you tell me what you're looking well, for. I'll pull it out. <laughs> well, 99% of the time, that was me for sure. But uh, as I get older, I'm not quite as good as I used to be. But uh, I, I know if I've read something, uh, you know, I typically know where I read it and therefore where it should be <laughs> in the house. <laughs> yeah. 
all of our collections start small, uh, Edward, but then at some point they get so large that uh, you almost really can't move. You're, you're stuck in that particular house. Well, I definitely, uh, you know, I don't have three houses worth, but I, I guess I have, uh, you know, a big house uh, is probably safe to say. And it was already full before I retired and brought home all my work stuff. And, you know, so it, it's definitely clutter. <laughs> and, but I'm proud. I'm proud of it. It's not bad clutter. Oh, yeah. There you go. Yeah, great stuff. And they bring back great memories. And then your, your uh, home office, your office there in your house, you uh, mentioned that it's kind of like a, a Ripley's Museum in miniature. Well, um, one thing that happened, and, and this is, you know, a bit of a long story, so cut me off if you're bored. But one of the very first things that happened in my career at Ripley's is I walked into a, you know, what was an archive, but it was very basic. And, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff was still in boxes when I first joined the company. And literally, it was the first week I was at the company, I said, I'm going to need some bookshelves. And we had two gentlemen uh, on, on staff, uh, Terry Hall. Terry Hall is the name I'm looking for. Terry Hall and Jimmy Doyle. And basically, they were very busy eight months of the year and didn't have a whole lot to do four months of the year over you know, the winter when tourism slows down. So Terry Hall took it upon himself to make me bookshelves. And I love those bookshelves like you never loved bookshelves before. <laughs> when, we moved, when we moved from Canada to Florida uh, in 1993, I brought them all with me. You know, I could have replaced them, but they'd been made for me. They had sentimental value of nothing else. Mm -hmm. But when I retired in 218, uh, I, you know, I considered them the company's property. And I got a phone call about three weeks after I retired and says, are you going to take these bookshelves? And I said, what do you mean? He says, well, everybody thinks they're yours. And I said, well, you know, they were made for me, but, you know, they were always the company's property. No, they're going to throw them out if you don't want them. <laughs> so I, got, I got in the car and I made five trips back and forth to the office and brought my bookshelves with me. There you go. Now, I have absolutely no room in my house for these bookshelves. <laughs> so other things, other things had to go to make room for them. But I literally have recreated basically my office now in my house. It looks very much the setup is exactly like I had it for, you know, 25 years that I was in an office here in Orlando. Oh, wow. <laughs> that is just fascinating. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, anytime you go by that bookshelf or look at that bookshelf, uh, it's going to spark memories. Yeah, and I've, I've made it a, you know, the, they, they have some books on them, but they're basically cabinets of curiosity. I've got all kinds of little things in there like the things that are on my uh, book cover. You, you mentioned my book, Buying the Bazaar. Well, you know, on that cover, I've got a, some sequins from the Marilyn Monroe's famous John F. Kennedy dress. I got a dinosaur egg. I've got some dinosaur teeth. I got, a, you know, a pocket watch. I've got a couple little Egyptian things. I have cabinets full of those kind of little memorabilia. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm looking at the cover right now, and uh, it looks like some shark's teeth or something are on there, too. Or 
up in the upper left upper left corner or and then uh, well there's, there's, those are actually dinosaur teeth oh dinosaur oh. dinosaur teeth those, those are dinosaurs mm-hmm mm-hmm and while we're talking about your book covers uh on the back cover um there's a ripley's type cartoon <clears throat> calling you the master of oddities was that created just for you or was that something that got published now, this is specifically created for the book. Uh-huh. Uh, in, in the book, the gentleman who currently lives in Jacksonville, Florida, Drew Hunter, a uh, longtime friend. He was the original designer of our first uh, franchise museums in San Antonio and Dallas, Texas, uh, going back into the late 1980s. So I've known him and close friends for over 30 years. And... Um, I, I didn't feel comfortable asking a Ripley artist to draw it, uh, but I knew that Drew, as an artist uh, of great capabilities, could produce something Ripley-esque, mm-hmm. uh, what he came up with. So it was, it was a nice little retirement present that he gave me the uh, the right to, to put it on the book cover. Well, he certainly hit the target because there I was asking you if it was uh, an actual Ripley's uh, cartoon. So he did the job, well, he, and he did it well. got the right he's got me looking pretty good maybe a a little skinnier than i really am a shrunken <laughs> head in one hand and it it looks like a ripley cartoon it does. not of course the goal <laughs> you know we're, we're talking about ripley and museum and a, a place where you spent 40 uh good years of your life let's uh tell our listeners uh exactly who robert ripley was well, that is a good question because, you know, he's been dead now since 1949 and a whole lot of people have never heard of him and don't realize that Ripley's, believe it or not, is named after a real guy named Robert Ripley. He was born in California, turn of the, well, a little before the turn of the century. One of the real great, believe it or not, because no one's exactly sure when he was born, but sometime in the 1890s, uh, I usually use the date 1890. And in 1911, he moved to San Francisco proper and got a job drawing for a a newspaper. And that sounds a little bizarre today, but newspapers at the turn of the century didn't have photographs. They all had art people on board that drew the news. And Ripley himself uh, started as a sports illustrator. Uh, his oh. big break came in 1910 when he did the Jack Johnson uh, boxing match in Reno that, you know, Jack Johnson became the first African-American world champion, uh, despite the odds being all against him. So he starts as a sports cartoonist in San Francisco. Two or three years, he does okay, but, you know, he's a little uh, frustrated that he's not growing as fast as he wanted. And Jack London, famous author who worked for the same newspaper, suggested that he move to New York. And with virtually only $15 in his pocket, he crossed the country and landed in New York with a portfolio and a couple letters of reference and beat around uh, the streets a little bit until he found a job with King Feature Syndicate, uh, owned by William Randolph Hearst, and again, started as a cartoon illustrator, but in the 1920s, he actually was a passenger on the very first around-the-world luxury cruise. 
Oh, wow. And he, wrote, he wrote newspaper articles, journals, based on that trip of all the exotic things he was seeing around the world. And, and this is the time, you know, as I said, literally the very first cruise ship to go around the world. You know, most people hadn't been out of their city, never mind their state or their country. And it, it caught on immediately that people were really fascinated by what he had to say about Japan or South Africa or India, all the places he got to. And based on that one journal from 1923, you know, when he gets back to America, they say, well, you know, we want you to do this, you know, once a week, twice a week. And pretty soon sports, you know, was no longer the emphasis just unusual thing and, and culture is a big part of it but geography uh, politics nothing was sacred Ripley wrote and drew about everything and I didn't mention that but he was an illustrator also a writer so he, he you know it's a little more than a caption you know call it call it a paragraph sometimes it's longer than that but you know a brief description with with an illustration to go with it uh, he publishes his first book, uh, just a collection of the things he'd been drawing in the 20s that had been published in newspapers. And the book was an, a, a runaway bestseller. And, you know, he'd already been at it for 10 years plus. And, you know, if you take his sports illustrations, really been at it 20 years. But as they say, an overnight success starting in 1929. From 1929 to 1949, he was the highest paid uh, person in America, uh, probably the most recognizable. 1936 National Poll picked him as the second best job next to the president. Uh, you know, he was a household name. Had a weekly radio show, ended up doing a couple other books. 1933, he opens his first museum, which he calls an auditorium, spelled ODD, uh, in Chicago. Uh, he makes some movies. He's literally everywhere. For 20 years, you know, top of the game, top of fame. Wow, I had no idea. That's that's a lot of facts I did not know about Robert Ripley. Oh, believe it or not. Yeah. <laughs> <All right>. Literally. <laughs> when he dies in 1949... Uh, his collection, and he had three houses and an apartment, uh, so a big collection of exotica is brought from all over the world, sold at public auction. So there's really no Ripley's Believe It or Not until Ripley died. One gentleman named John Arthur, who was a Broadway uh, theater impresario, bought as much as he could afford to buy and he opens the first Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum one year after Ripley died in St. Augustine, Florida. And so Florida has a near and dear part of the Ripley story, uh, though Ripley himself didn't really spend a lot of time here. That is truly amazing and uh, uh, in our... Um future in our uh, next uh, episode we're going to be uh, asking you how uh, you took a collection where most of Ripley's things were no longer available and uh, added 25,000 um, ex uh, exhibits for the Ripley's museums but that's that's coming in just a little bit 
uh, I want to also find out a little bit about somebody who you um, said was a very influential person in your life, um, and his name was Alec Rigby. Well, Robert Ripley, as I said, died in 1949. Uh, the company, as we know it, starts in the 1950s. Uh, in 1963, a Canadian named Alec Rigby, who was originally from St. Catharines, Ontario, which is about an hour, hour and a half south of where I was living in Toronto, bought the company from John Arthur, who had, in the 50s, the company had been basically stationed in New York City uh, and was more or less a publishing company. There was three museums during the 50s, but never more than two at one time. It really wasn't a museum company. It was a publishing company producing cartoons in the style that Ripley had been drawing them beforehand. Well, Alec Rigby buys all rights to the company, uh, the museums, the books, the cartoons, the radio shows. Uh, there wasn't a TV show at the time, but the rights to make a TV show. And he moves it from New York City to Toronto, Canada. And that takes place in the 60s, and that's basically how I come into the picture. Alec was very much uh, entrepreneurial style of Robert Ripley slash P.P. Barnum, uh, but he didn't draw the cartoon. He had no you know, physical part of the cartoon. He just owned it, and you know, his, his goal was to grow it. So he really is the one that started the museum part of the business. Uh, in his time, uh, I, we went from two museums to eight Ripley's Believe It or Not museums, but also got involved in wax museums and crown jewels museums, but that's a whole other ballgame. But Alex hired me uh, straight out of college. Uh, in fact, I was hired for a summer job and thought I was going to go back to college, but uh, he ended up talking me into staying. And again, you know, nobody would have guessed that a, a summer job was going to turn into a 40-year career. Uh, and when I was hired, I was specifically hired to deal with the Ripley's cartoon as an archive. Uh, it was through attrition that I got into the museum part of the business. And uh, roughly seven years of working in the archives, I suddenly was given the chance to also work in the uh, exhibits department. And again, through attrition after a couple more years, I became the vice president of both departments. So I worked with the company for 40 years, but really was the exhibits guy for 33 of that. Oh, wow. <clears throat> and uh, also, uh, you mentioned that uh, TV series, sure enough, uh, did come along, and uh, it was called... Uh, believe it or not, and it kicked off, I believe, in 1980. And weren't you involved with uh, all 82 episodes of that show? I was. Uh, the, the first uh, pilot was in 1979, and the show had three pilots and then four years. Uh, so 79 to 84 basically is the lifespan of that show. And there was 82 episodes in total. And I think you know, I, I, I don't know this to be fact, but I think Alec Rigby was already working on the possibility of a TV show, and he probably saw me 
as a guy that had the library science skills, the research skills, the literary skills, to be the liaison between the company and Hollywood to make this happen. Um, again, you know, from day one, I was involved in it. It was a very exciting part of my career, you know, that first five years. Yeah, I did meet Jack Palance and Jack Haley, that was the producer of the show, and a few other stars, too. And, you know, I regularly went back and forth from Toronto to California. Um, you know, it, 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 it's hard to say it because a lot of things happened in the next, you know, 30 years. But that five years with the Ripley TV show was very, very exciting and some of the best times of my life. Oh, sure, sure. Um, is there a favorite story you can recall from that experience that really sticks out in your mind? Well, I'll, I'll mention three if, uh, if I've got the time to do so. You've got the time. Probably, oh, yeah. Probably my very favorite uh, concerns the Toulon Bogman of Denmark. And this was a story that I had read in school in probably the fourth or fifth grade. We had these color-coordinated little reader things that we got tested on. You know, you, you read one side of this piece of paper, and it was a story, and then the other side had half a dozen questions that you had to answer, and you got enough right, you just went from one color to another color. So bizarre way my brain works. I even remember that it was in the red series. But it absolutely fascinated me. It's a, a murder victim probably sacrificial as opposed to, you know, nasty murder. <laughs> There's a difference. <laughs> but um, the body was so well preserved in the peat bogs of Denmark that when it was discovered in the early 1950s, police thought it was a current murder story. And it took umpteen number of scientists and you know, every kind of official looking at it, just come up, figure out, that, oh, my God, this thing's almost a thousand years old. This is Viking type period, not yesterday's news. Now, since that one, they have found a couple others. Uh, they can be seen in the museum in Copenhagen. Uh, but that one stuck out at me as one of the most interesting things I read as a kid. Sure enough, the very first meeting we had with the TV research crews, the, the creative staff, they said, we want to do something on mummies. What do you got? And, you know, I said, well, here's this and this and this, and these are all, you know, Egyptian mummies, maybe South American mummies. But my favorite is this story of a petrified man, preserved man from Denmark. And Ripley had done a cartoon of it. Uh, well, I shouldn't say Ripley, Ripley's, it was in the 50s, uh, had done a cartoon of it. And from that one cartoon, one conversation, they made what was to become the very first clip shown on the, the Ripley's TV show with Jack Palin. So it was, it was in the pilot as opposed to in the series itself, but it's literally the very first segment of Ripley TV. And it came from a, you know, a grade school reader. Oh, that's too cool. <laughs> that really is cool. Uh, so that, that, that's probably my very favorite. But um, on the show, each show ended with Jack uh, talking directly into the camera. 
and it typically was a, a, a one to two minute segment, but it was, you know, just a, a tease closer sort of thing. And again, this one was based on a comic book. Ripley's had a comic series in the early 60s called True Ghost Stories. And this was a story in one of our comic books about a werewolf. And basically, uh, you know, don't ask me if I believe in werewolves. That's a whole other story. But this particular story was so real that they thought they could put it on TV and literally ask the question, well, you know, here's the story. You believe it or not. Well, I tell you, Jack Talent sat there on a couch telling this story. You know, no props, nothing. He's just speaking straight into the camera. And he made it terrifying. <laughs> you, that that two-minute little segment left you absolutely shaking and asking the question, well, maybe there is werewolf. <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah. I now, I've forgotten what the third one was going to be. Oh, I, okay, yes, I, I recall. So in the third, in the second season, in the second season of the show, Jack's daughter, Holly Plant, joined as co-host. And she had absolutely no real credentials. No, you know, it was strictly, you know, daddy's girl. And my first meeting with Holly uh, was a bit of a disaster. One of Ripley's most famous and my favorite exhibit is a gentleman named Hananuma Masakichi. And this is a, a life-size wooden Japanese hand-carved statue, self-portrait of the artist. And Ripley bought it in San Francisco in 1933, showed it in all his museums during his lifetime. And, uh, afterwards, we had it in four or five, and it's still in the Ripley's collection. It, it dates from the 1870s. Uh, it is the most lifelike wooden sculpture probably in the world. All right, and fascinating, fascinating story. He's dying of tuberculosis. He wants to leave something, uh, you know, make himself immortal for his bride-to-be, carves this statue of himself, plucks his own hair and inserts it in the statue, plucks his own teeth and inserts them in the statue. Whoa. If you look at this thing, you are absolutely convinced you are looking at a real person. So I get a phone call saying, that the TV crew wants to film Masakichi in Hollywood. Well, Masakichi at the time is in San Francisco, and we really don't want to move him too much because he's worth a whole lot of money. So it was decided that I would fly out to San Francisco and with the manager there, drive it ourselves from San Francisco to Hollywood. Supposedly for... You know, a, 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 like it's going to be the longest segment on the whole show was never more than seven minutes. Most of these things were, you know, two, three minutes long. So, you know, call, call it a 10 minute segment. And we're going to all this trouble moving a, a million dollar object. Well, we get there, we set up, there's more people than I could imagine. Well, you know, what do all these people do to film a 10 minute little segment on a wooden statue? And we're there from like six in the morning. And Holly doesn't show up to narrate it until like 10 in the morning. So she's got 100 people probably waiting for her, getting angrier by the minute. 
she gets there and then she has to do her hair. It was one in the afternoon before we finally started. And then, of course, she couldn't say Hananuma Masakichi for the life of it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> there, there must have been 80 takes. All right. <laughs> so our little three-minute segment ended up taking 18 hours. Oh. But to the credit of Jack Haley, who is the producer and director of the show, when they showed that, it was absolute dynamite television. It, it, the close-ups of the statue, they got right up there. You saw his eyebrows, you saw the teeth. Uh, they did it proud. They did it proud, and even Holly looked okay. Oh, that's fantastic. That, that is. And that is, that's typical of Hollywood, isn't it, Gary? I, yeah, it really is. All of the magic is done <laughs> in the editing know, room. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was going to say, you know, anybody that has been involved in any kind of television knows that it takes at least an hour for a minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. And it takes more people than, than you can absolutely imagine. You have no That's idea true. what they're all doing. But, uh, yeah, the, the magic of Hollywood is, is magic because it, it never feels as good when you're doing it as it ends up being. <laughs> That's very true. Yeah. That's very true. Well, Edward, you certainly uh, live up to uh, your reputation as the uh, most interesting uh, man alive. And... Uh, would you be uh, willing to come back with us again next week and uh, tell us a little bit about uh, how you added to the Ripley collection over 33 years? Well, if you'll have me, I'd be happy to come back. What do you say, Gary? Oh, I think it's a deal. I think it's a deal. It's a deal. All right, Edward. Uh, we'll be talking you, to you again next week. Yeah, and thank you for joining us uh, this week and sharing some of the uh, true behind the scenes of Ripley's Believe It or Not. Yeah. I'm Richard. And I'm Gary. And this is a very incredible story. Oh, yeah. <laughs>